Welcome to the Maker Vision Podcast, a podcast where we help you take your ideas from a dream to reality. Each episode will cover topics to help you overcome frustrations we all encounter in our maker community. I'm Trevor Wanamaker, a part-time maker running MakerExperiment.com, and my co-host Stephen Ellis is a part-time woodworker running Old South Woodcraft. We have both encountered bumps and pitfalls along the road we call making, and we are using this podcast to help you avoid the same pitfalls. Welcome to the Maker Vision Podcast for episode number two, non-tool shop items that you can't live without. But before I get to that, Stephen, what have you been up to in the shop? Uh, it's been a uh, been a fun night in the shop today, or I should say tonight, Trevor. Um, still working on a cutting board for the mother-in-law, so I uh, had to figure out how to cut it into strips and re-glue it because um, the first glue-up was a little different than what I had anticipated, so now I'm having to go back and kind of play with it. So that means a little bit of gaps here and there, and some epoxy. No uh, no river table, but just some structural epoxy. How about you, man? What's been going on with you? I got home today. It was still about 107 degrees outside. Yeesh. So I for some reason decided today was the day to finish assembling the red and silver version of the Woodpecker's 1281 square replica that I'm working on. That thing is a beaut for sure. Thank you. So I went to put it together, had a little bit of an issue with hole alignment, and had to go back and fix that a little bit, but it is assembled now. That part of it is drying outside with some shellac to help kind of protect it. Mm -hmm. Then I went to assemble the case and found a different issue where I have an eighth inch diameter piece of metal that's going to help for the acrylic piece to rotate around and lock the square into place when it's hung Mm -hmm. on the wall. And the unfortunate side of that is I undersize the circular slot, so I have to go back and laser cut a new one. But all in all, it could be much worse. So I'm pretty happy with where I am right now. That's good. That's good. So can you not just drill it out slightly bigger? Take a, you know, kind of kind of play that margin game a little bit? So I can, but... I won't have the same clean edge that the laser makes because it kind of just melts the plastic away and it's nice and shiny. Uh, and I won't have that anymore if I do that. Gotcha. See, I was I was thinking it was cut into the MDF housing, not the little plastic retainer piece. No, it's just a little maybe two inch by two inch piece of plastic. And I have some extra materials, so I'm just going to cut another one. It'll be a lot easier and save a lot more time. Oh, yeah. Thus, the beauty of the laser. But just goes to show, we all run into issues on things we thought we had planned out. <laughs> oh yeah, doesn't, ma- doesn't matter what the material is, you're always going to run into tolerance issues. Yes, yes you will. So, let's get on to today's topic. So, today's topic, we wanted to talk about non-tool shop items that we all have that we may not think we have or don't think about that aren't tools or tool accessories. So we're not going to cover the the table saws or the joiners or planers or even the push sticks and things of that nature that go along with the table saw. Today we wanted to focus more on the little-known items. So Stephen, why don't you go ahead and start us off with the first one. All right, so we'll break into something that's commonly overlooked but i know i have a good surplus at my place um rags and general finishing goods not you know not an Erlex sprayer or anything like that none of the actual specific finishing products but rags um i know i have probably five or six grocery bags full of old t-shirts old pair you know old like cotton shirts 
Shoot, I have some jeans in there, some polo shirts, because you never know what material type you might need. Surprisingly, polo shirts do soak up a lot of liquid in case you spill something. Now, if you wash your shirts with a lot of uh, detergent or um, uh, fabric softener, they, uh, they won't soak up very well. But if you have old, ratty, nasty stuff like I do, then don't worry. They're going to soak up just fine. Um, and the other thing that I really like to keep around the shop are something that I think most most uh, home goods stores and, and uh, Ace, Home Depot, those sort of places, they call them chip brushes. They're those super cheap, maybe 50 cents or a dollar little wood handle brushes. I think they've got a natural fiber on them, but they're great for just putting down like a real quick coat on something or like even a base layer coat, something you're not worried about brush marks or anything like that. And they just, they work really well. And the other thing is, if you need to brush something off, something real delicate you're just trying to clean a piece with, they actually work great for that as, you know, as long as they don't have finish on them. Um, I know you, uh, you take a slightly different approach on, uh, on your rags and finishing goods. What, what do you got, Trevor? I used to actually use t-shirts and cloths. And I found that for the stuff that I make, and just the way that I do things, they tend to leave a little more lint than what I wanted. And I actually changed over to the blue, what looked like basically paper towels that I got at Home Depot. They don't leave lint on the stuff that I'm doing. They're really good for me because I do more laser stuff. And when it comes to glue up or painting it's really fast to wipe stuff off and it doesn't leave any kind of residue for me where the old cloths and paper or the old cloths and the old uh, t-shirts and things like that they'd always end up leaving these little tiny fibers and it would drive me nuts so that's the reason I switched over I'm not saying that it's you know the best towel it just is the one that works for me and I do have paintbrushes that are just for those 50 cent ones that you're talking about. And I use them to brush on some glues and I use them to brush on some other stuff. And then I'll just pitch it in the trash. Usually because they're fairly inexpensive to use. There are a couple of silicone brushes I have specifically for glue ups. If I really want to make sure that I can reuse the brush. But if I just have one next to me and it's just fast, I can use that too. And then I don't care if it has glue, I'll just throw it away. It was, you know, a quarter, 50 cents, whatever it might be. In the grand scheme of things, it's a fairly cheap investment. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, I know I like those little cheap brushes. Um, I use them a lot for paint stripper and, and things like that because paint stripper will ruin pretty much just about any other sort of paintbrush you're going to have so even the the two or three dollar ones that still seem really cheap the econo pack they sell at most uh, big box stores um the plastic and the glue will break down real quick with paint stripper whereas the uh the chip brushes if they do break down throw it away use another one real quick and you know it, it works great for that so i think the next thing since we're talking about Talking about all the fun stuff like paint stripper. Uh, we want to roll into the shop safety. Is that that be a good place to roll into, Trevor? I think that's a main category that we all often neglect. Oh yeah, everyone everyone thinks okay. Let me keep all ten of my digits. All right, that's that's legit. Definitely want to keep all ten of your digits. But guess what? You're gonna get no making done if one you can't breathe and you're dead. And two, if you're blind as a bat because something flew in your eye. So the thing I want to address, because it's uh, it's part of my daily, you know, normal job, is uh, respirator use. So I know everybody's got their own sort of special opinion about respirators. Some people hate to wear them. They're, they're bulky. They're, they're irritating. They're in the way. Things like that. But as somebody who uses one every day, it doesn't really bother me. I have probably four of them that I have to, that I have to use. But for the people that are looking for a more substantial respiratory protection item as opposed to a dust mask or unnamed two-letter mask that I'm not personally a fan of, but they seem to be making their way around the making community, um, is a standard half-mask respirator. 
And in getting a half mask respirator, you also need to get the proper cartridges for it. And that is a HEPA cartridge, which is the purple one. Um, sometimes they're a big, like, round, flexible disc. Sometimes it's a little hard plastic thing in a square or, or you know, disc sort of shape. Uh, that's for your dusts and everything like that, and they're very, very good. If you get a nice, tight seal on your respirator, you should have no problems. You can use that thing probably for years as a maker, unless it's your full-time gig. And then the other one that uh, people get kind of confused on a lot is a uh, VOC cartridge. Uh, that's volatile organic compounds for the for the layman. Um, and those are good for paint stains and finishes, um, as long as they're not a very specific types of, of uh, paints and finishes, things like that, that a VOC cartridge will not work for, and you need to contact the manufacturer about that. And a lot of these respirator companies, 3M, North, Spirian, a lot of them have all their information on the internet. Super simple. Google respirator, half mask, X manufacturer, and it'll tell you everything that they make and, hey, what does this cover? And it's pretty simple. That, I mean, that's, as, that's about as idiot-proof as you can make it. Go online and it just gives you a big chart. And if you have any questions, I mean, you can always call the manufacturer that's the that's the easiest thing to do, and they'll be more than happy to help you. The respirator is one of those items that, I'll be honest, I didn't have until recently. And if I'm in a hurry, I often neglect it. And that's also why I get a scratchy throat and can't breathe well the next day, because I will be spray painting signs, completely forget about it. And then the next day, I remember, oh yeah... That's why I bought that. That was stupid. Oh yeah, don't worry. You're the uh, you're the ninety nine percent. I'm kind of more of the one percent in that category, but I'm just it's ingrained in me now. You'd be proud though, because I did use it today when I was super gluing the square back together. So I did think about it. It has the added bonus too that not only do you look like, but you also sound like Darth Vader at times. See, I was going to go with Bane because I'm a Tom Hardy guy. I, just, I really like Bane. I mean, that's, that's legit. It's legit. <laughs> so the next safety item, safety glasses. So this is one of those items where I do wear prescription glasses. And a lot of people think that if they're wearing prescription glasses, they don't need anything else. And speaking from experience, that is not true. The best thing to do if you do wear glasses, and I got a pair from my old job, is they make these little wings that attach to your eyeglasses, and it will protect the sides as well, so you're not exposed from the sides. So if you don't wear normal safety glasses and you're wearing prescription eyewear, I would go with that as the best case scenario. To help protect you if you don't want to, well, if you want to be able to see because you have glasses for a reason and be protected at the same time. Oh, yeah. And um, every, every, you know, glasses manufacturer I can think of actually sell all the stuff you need to have prescription safety glasses. They already come with the side shields. The glass is a little thicker. It's still cut to whatever your prescription is. Is that what it, it I don't have. Prescription. Okay, yeah, so I'm not really sure. But yeah, it's got everything set up for that, because once again, day job, it's part of my part of my standard uh, safety accoutrement, is to have safety glasses. And there's there's times whenever uh, safety glasses aren't even enough. You have to go with the goggles, which I think, uh, I think some people out there use them, and, and I've used them in the past. They just, you know, they're, they're kind of bulky, so it's one of those situations like the respirator. You don't always want to wear them because they're bulky and in the way. Well, I'm sure if somebody made them a fashion statement, everybody would start doing it. Think about it. We just need to find the right content creator. Well, I can tell you it's not us. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put it this way. This face is just too beautiful to put anything on. Yeah, you keep thinking that. That's what I'm going to go with. So the next item, going along those lines, the hearing protection. So I have a few of these. I have a set of earplugs. I don't use them very often anymore. 
because I usually use headphones and I have both a an over the ear pair so they're the 3M style hearing protection that plug into your phone or whatever you want to use and then I also have a pair of the ISO tunes that are good for that situation as well if you don't want the over the ear but you still want that hearing protection and in the past I was also bad about wearing these I think we all kind of neglect this stuff and I have been able to tell over the years of not using it that it's harder to hear certain sounds or certain things certain tones and since I started trying to wear them a little bit more reliably and all the time when I'm out there, especially with the laser and the exhaust fan and things, that I'm not losing that ability to hear certain tones nearly as fast as I was. That's good. I mean, it's hearing loss is like one of those weird things where some people, yeah, they may never lose their hearing, but they may not realize they lost their hearing because it's a weird tone or a weird octave, something like that. It's like they can't hear a bird sing anymore because it's just so faint. Well, and the other thing that goes along with this is just because you're wearing hearing protection that happens to play music does not mean that allows you to play your music so loud <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that you then have a different issue. So anytime I wear these, I make it so the music is about the same level as any outside tonal noise that I can hear, if I can hear anything, and then just put it on a lower volume. That way, not only is that good for, you know, your hearing because you're not bursting music into your ears, but then if something happens where somebody's around you and you hear something knock on the ground, you can still hear that without being completely uh, drowned out by music. Yeah, no, I can, I can, I can be the first to admit that I'll be running the planer and also have the dust collector going at the same time, and they're pretty much kind of right together on top of each other as a sort of a package unit in the shop. And uh, many times has my wife had to like come down and like wave her arms at me because I can't hear it. I've got my hearing protection on. It's just there is so much ambient noise that I, the house could probably be on fire. I would I wouldn't know. Well, they're also good for if you're playing them too loud, and you have one of those moments that's you know a no crap moment in the shop, and you get a little frustrated and you might scream at the top of your lungs. That's usually when your wife comes out and is like, are, are you okay? But you don't hear her because... So then she just looks at you like you're crazy. So there's always that aspect, too, that you need to be able to hear other people around you, especially in case of some kind of an emergency. You don't want music to be too loud as well. Oh, yeah. So you don't want to... You don't want to get rid of one safety issue to and then create another safety issue. Exactly. Yeah, And the last little shop safety supply that's pretty common are the gloves. So whether these are nitrile gloves, whether they're, you know, a normal pair of gloves that you wear every day, it just depends on who you are, what you're doing. I use them a lot when it comes to doing glue-ups so the super glue doesn't stick to my hands as well as I don't put oils and stuff onto the paint that makes things harder to use. Uh, so what kind of gloves do you use for this? I mean, it just depends on the situation. Finishing tasks, gluing, thing like things like that. Most of the time for a glue-up, just normal PVA glue, um, I just let it get on my hands. That's just uh, it's kind of commonplace now. Cause I kind of I have, still have that kid in me where I like to just peel it off once it's dry. Because, it, you know, it's kind of cool. But for Do you still eat glue like when you were in kindergarten too? Unfortunately, Elmer's changed their changed their recipe. It doesn't taste as good anymore. I don't, I don't know. We may have to take it up with the Elmer's people. It's just it's bad bad quality control, man. Just just not as good. <laughs> but uh, but things like um, you know doing epoxy work just reduce the mess. It's hard to get off your fingers. It doesn't pe- you know it doesn't peel off. Just about any finish except for my paste wax, my homemade paste wax that I make, and then. Um, 
it's, uh, like mineral oil finishes because they're supposed to be food safe. I, I'm not as worried about that. So um, I, uh, I just use normal run-of-the-mill nitrile gloves. I try to use a slightly thicker glove so that way it doesn't, uh, it doesn't rip or tear as easy. Um, and the other thing that I use a lot is uh, cut-resistant gloves, and that's whenever I'm handling rough lumber, denailing things. Um, since I work with a lot of reclaimed stuff, there's always just full of dust and just nastiness on it, so I go through and, and grind that off, and I definitely don't want to catch a, uh, a spinning wheel to a finger. Uh, I've seen that happen too many times whenever I was in a metal shop, and it's... It, it's it's bad news. I mean, it doesn't take a finger off, but it doesn't look good. You're you're kind of reminiscent of a hamburger meat sort of look. It's just it's not great. So, nitrile gloves for chemicals, glue ups, epoxy, things like that, and then cut resistant or leather gloves. Even the cheapo leather gloves you go buy at a dollar store. As long as they've got any sort of thickness to them and they're real leather, not not synthetic leather. They're good because you never know what's going to be on something. You never know if you're going to flip something over and, boom, just stick a nail into your hand. You don't want to do that. No one wants tetanus. I agree with that one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And on the topic of of finishes and things like that, let's roll over to must-have shop chemicals. Um, this is one of my favorite topics in the shop because I mentioned it first episode Super glue, which I shouldn't technically use because super glue is a trademark. Most people call it CA glue or cyanoacrylate glue, and it's amazing stuff to have in the shop. I mean, I use it for all kinds of stuff, little repairs, a chip out on something, glue it back together, put it on there, 20, 30 seconds later, boom, it's back together. I can go back to planing something or cutting something, figuring something out. Um, my recommendation here is I do actually have two brand name products. One is a little tiny bottle of Loctite brand. The gel, it's got like a blue tip on it, and I keep that in my shop apron because it's great for, for doing a quick repair on something. It's also great if, for some reason, you cut yourself and don't have a Band-Aid close by or something like that. You can use the super glue to glue your skin back together. The doctor's office or the hospital will charge you about $400 for it, and the big box store might charge four. So it's well worth keeping at least two in your shop apron. Yeah, I would say that I've done that. I wouldn't say that we're giving proper medical advice here. Okay, all right. All right. <laughs> big, big disclaimer. Neither one of us is a physician, a doctor which I guess is the same thing. A nurse. I mean, I used to be an EMT, but that was way back when. You know, that's a, that's about as far as my knowledge goes. But in case of emergency, it could help. But otherwise, consult your otherwise consult, professional. <laughs> consult your health care professional or consult your wife because, I mean, they know everything. That is very true. That is That's very true. And the other... Brand, brand name recommendation I have is uh, is for um, Stickfast. That's just what my local local wood dealer carries. Um, it, a lot of people have 2P10 and things like that, but Stickfast is the one I use because I can get the thick, the thin, and the quick set activator. It's a little little aerosol can, and that's perfect for quick repairs. Or you've got a knot hole in something you want to cover up real quick. Oh, shoot, I didn't realize that was there in a glue-up. You can put some of that thick stuff in there, spray it a couple times, let it sit for a few minutes, and you can just sand that right out. As far as this kind of glue goes, I've used mostly DAP and Gorilla Glue. Because for what I'm using and what I'm doing for sign assemblies and things like that, I just needed a super glue that was fast that would put everything together easily uh, and would not come off over time. And I've, between the two, I've, I've had a preference lately that leans more towards the Gorilla Glue side. I did have a couple of times where some letters popped off in the past. Ooh, that's not good. So there's, I mean, there's the good and the bad of everything, right? One was good at giving me the time to set stuff. So if I misplaced it, I could still recover 
The other one, I don't have that ability. It's like I stick it and it's there. But it never comes off either. So it just kind of depends. Yeah, I mean, it, there's always going to be those sort of sort of issues. It's, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're trying to work on something as detailed and as small as, as you're working with, it's like, all right, do I want the long open time or do I want to know, or do I want to know as soon as I stick it, boom, it's done. I don't have to worry about it anymore. Exactly. Another item that I'd say is a go-to shop item here, uh, is actually, I would say spray paint, chillax, and that kind of stuff. So I found very recently that shellac is a must in mine. <laughs> so I use it to prep pretty much every sign I do to help the first layer of paint go on much more smoothly. It kind of gets rid of those fibers that creep up. And I found that even if I spray it at the end, especially on this Woodpecker Square project, that it's sealing the two the different paint colors I have on it really well. So when I was trying to assemble it on the test one that I did, I messed all of the engraving painting up. But when I sprayed it with shellac, before I painted the engravings, it went on perfectly. So there are still parts, you know, where some of the paint didn't stick right, but that was my own fault. The shellac helped a lot in just prepping it so I could send it through the laser, spray paint a whole different color on an existing color, and then it comes out flawless in the end. So so you're now coming over to the dark side is what you're saying? You realize shellac is like is like the cat's pajamas? It, it only took 30 years of my it life to it. figure that out. I know, and it's only been around since, I don't know, like the 1700s or something? I can't remember how old <laughs> shellac is now. The sprayable, you know, buying a can, I think it's Zenser or Def, maybe. Uh, shellac is slightly different than, than the average woodworker's, you know, 10-pound, 5-pound cut shellac, but the principle is the same. Um, for those that aren't aware, shellac is pretty much a, a universal finish. It'll bond with just about any other finish. It can go on before, it can go on after, it all blends together. It's very easy to sand. Sometimes you don't even have to sand it. If you're just going to keep spraying shellac one after another after another, technically they all blend together. You know, it's better to sand between coats, but all you have to do really is just give a scuff and keep going. Since we're on the subject of shellac, one of those one of those beautiful, beautiful woodworking items I'm in love with uh, is... Uh, Something something that I I use quite frequently in the shop, denatured alcohol, but to kind of blend that together, we have denatured alcohol, acetone, and mineral spirits. Now, these are all very, very highly volatile, flammable uh, chemicals, but they're all very shop safe if you make sure you, you maintain the, the, the proper protocols for them. They are great to, to do finishing with. They're great to clean stuff with. They dry very, very easily, readily. Acetone, I mean, basically, you could spill probably a, a cup of it on the ground, and it'll dry in just a matter of minutes or possibly less. I use it a lot at work, um, so acetone's, acetone's a great product, but you don't want to be inhaling a lot of it. Acetone's very bad for you to inhale, so if you're using acetone to strip something or to prep something with paint or finish, do it outside. And actually, when we had our new shower installed in our old house. The person that installed it actually said that denatured alcohol is good for cleaning the material that was in that shower. And as long as you're wearing the proper, you know, respiratory stuff and the wearing gloves and everything else, the denatured alcohol got rid of pretty much any dirt, stain, whatever was on that shower. And it was, like, new every time. So it has uses beyond just the shop, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's great to clean just about anything. I use it to clean uh, roofing, uh, membrane roofing, whenever I have to go, go out in the field and install a patch on a roof. Um, so it's great stuff because it is not chlorinated base. It's, it's not a chlorine-based solvent. It's just wood grain alcohol, as, as the old-timers would say, wood alcohol. Um, 
So it's, I mean, like, like Trevor said, it's great to clean just about everything. Just be prepared. You know, it, it's, it's going to off gas very quickly. It could, it, it can knock you down if you're, if you're not prepared for it, but it's amazing stuff. Just like mineral spirits. I love to use mineral spirits in my shop because I, it, it does a wonderful, uh, faux finish whenever I'm doing finishing work so I can see what my grain's going to look like, see if I have any sort of undulations or anything like that. Now it's a little bit more oily. It's not, it's not like mineral oil, but it's mineral spirits. So it can be a little bit more oily. And so if you put it on wood or, or, or some other material, it, it's not going to flash off as quickly as the acetone or, or denatured alcohol, but it's still an amazing product. I use it to clean my table saw whenever I have oil residue on it. If, uh, if I've cleaned my table saw, I use that because it helps get all the nasty oils and stuff off, like, off that so it doesn't end up getting in my finished products. Trevor, do you want to tell them, since, since you've got a background in industrial work, do you want to tell them what you don't do with rags covered in solvent? So I'm going to go ahead and and guess here that you don't want to just throw them in your trash for many, many reasons. And in my shop, I've actually taken like old paint cans, like the old, you know, gallon paint cans from whenever we painted the house, filled them with water and then put the rags in there to just soak them. Because I found that, and I've heard horror stories, where people will just throw them in the trash because they're going to take it out to the curb the next day. And what ends up happening is it will combust and catch everything in the trash can on fire. And before you know it, it spreads. So you definitely want to make sure you take proper care. You put them in the right kind of storage container. You don't just throw them in the trash bag or the trash can. And don't mess around with it because it can be... A very quick reaction. Oh, yeah. Uh, a guy I know lives about an hour and a half from here, professional flooring installer, I think about a month or so ago, he had his whole truck go up. He had refinished uh, about three or four square feet of flooring at the end of the day, uh, had taken a rag and shoved it inside a bottle what he thought had enough water in it, went home. It's a very hot day in, in South Carolina. It, uh, it ignited, and uh, all of a sudden he heard a, a small pop and looked outside, and the whole back of his truck was on fire. His truck is toast. There's not any, he's not, not able to recover any of it, and insurance is still going back and forth on it. It's not something to mess with. No, no, no. So the, probably one of the better recommendations that, that we have on this one is um, if, if you don't have a big, you know, grassy area, you can lay it out flat on the grass um, to dry out, make sure it is flat, um, to let it finish drying, let it cure out. I mean, if you set it out there for three or four days, let it get nice and hard and, and, uh, and crunchy, let it do that. And then you can throw it away. Uh, set it on concrete. If you have a concrete driveway, do it that way. Basically, you just want to make sure it's flat with nothing around it that can catch. Even, even in the best case scenario, accidents can happen. And uh, just about every woodworker and industrial company that I can think of have big, big receptacles that say oily rags only. And they're basically a giant steel drum with a heavy lid to keep things like this from happening. And while we're on the subject of making sure everything is, is trying to put away and cleaned, Trevor, you want to talk a little bit about shop cleanliness? I'm not sure that I'm not the the best person for shop cleanliness, but... I try to clean none up. of us. None of us are, are the are the best with shop cleanliness. Let's put it that way. It's a necessary evil. I like to clean up right as I'm doing things. So there's often times in my shop where I just use the tool or just use the jig, a drill, whatever it might be, and I've gotten into the habit that right after I use it, if I know I'm done with it for the rest of the day, I will go ahead and put it back right away. I do this for a couple reasons. One is it gets it out of my way. It's not sitting out where I can bump into it or knock it off and then it ends up rolling under a toolbox. And the other thing is it just makes me feel better when I have, you know, a clean work area. And I think that's more of a mental thing. But when it comes to, you know, assembling signs, I will put away anything that's not needed for that task. And occasionally, even when 
I know that I'll still use it later in the day if I know I'm going to, you know, be busy for two or three hours before I get to it, I'll still put it away. Because, honestly, it's not that big of a deal to do it. It maybe takes a few seconds. But the amount of time it's going to save me later that I know exactly where it's going to be is sometimes invaluable. I've put things down, not put them away right away, and ended up looking for um for an entire day and still never found it. So I find that being organized is one of the most important things in the shop for me. Well, that's, I mean, that's that's always a good thing. I know I'm not the best at doing it, but normally it seems like I'm trying to get a lot done in a short period of time since most of my work is done at night. So I don't always put things back right away. But the one thing I try to do at night, because i got to be quiet anyways, it's late in the night when I get finished up, is is try to sweep the floor. At least, if not, sweep it and get it in a dustpan and, and get it, you know, into the trash. Sweep it into a pile. And generally that's where I end up finding things that I've lost. Because wood shavings cover a floor a lot quicker than just about anything else in a shop. Which kind of rolls us into the non-shop tools for shop cleanliness. Three or four simple things. A small dustpan, a small handheld broom for the the guys that have a you know a big workbench. They're doing a lot of work. It's good to get the workbench cleaned off. You know if you've been out there before, used a shop vac trying to clean off the top of a bench, and oh look, there goes two or three nuts, or there goes a whole screwdriver. I just sent you know shooting through shooting through my dust collector. Not a not a good thing. And uh, once once it's either off the floor. You know, off the bench and onto the floor. Either use a, you know, just a little broom to to get the rest of the way up, or I break out the big push broom. You know, the the big uh, like 24 inch, 28 inch. I can't remember how wide they are, and just across the concrete floor. And uh, at the end of the night, I've just got a big old pile. Now that pile's maybe sitting there for two or three weeks before I ever throw it away or figure out something to do with it. But it's a neat organized pile of trash. <laughs> I like that. Neat and organized pile of trash. Hey, I mean, you know, one man's trash, right? One man's trash. And I think that also leads us to two more items that are pretty important here. The trash can, so you can actually get rid of that giant pile of trash you have. As well as, one thing I found is one of those magnetic pickup tools. So I often drop you know, things behind the bench or under something, and i they're just out of reach. I'm talking, you reach your whole arm in, and it's another two inches to get to the item you need. And I found that having this item, and it's usually, you know, some cheap thing from Harbor Freight, but it can definitely save you from having to move a bunch of stuff out of the way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I like, I have, I, I kind of have a two two-fold approach. I have one big one with I think like a five pound max on it, and it's uh it's probably about the length of my arm, so that way I don't have to bend over to pick up a bunch of screws. If a bunch of screws hit the ground or a bunch of nails, boom, grab all of them, pull the handle, and it just drops all of them. The other thing is is like you said that little magnetic pickup tool. It's uh some of them are like kind of a hinged sort of mechanics looking tool. Others are just like a straight collapsible rod. Either one of them are great because I know. Everyone at some point has dropped an arbor nut down inside all the shavings inside your table saw. And trying to find a black arbor nut and a bunch of walnut shavings or walnut uh, walnut chips, it's about impossible, pretty much. And I think that leads well into some of the next items. So the next items are some of the, the more oddball things that don't necessarily directly affect what you're doing as far as like your your rags or your finishes or things of that nature and one of the things that i researched the most was the shop lighting i spent probably a month doing nothing but reading articles about the temperature of the lights, the lumens that it outputs, and all of that stuff. And after doing that, I honestly have to say that I am happy with my choice. Because now, when, well, 
not currently because none of it's installed in the new house. But when I had it installed in the old house, I had a two-car garage. It was probably, I think they were like 11 or 12-foot ceilings in my garage. I think they were 12 because, I mean, it was about as as about as far as you could safely reach from like an 8-foot ladder. Yeah, and it, it was nice. It had storage all the way up the walls, and I had trouble lighting it. So I had just, you know, the garage light and these two other lights that were installed by the builder that were, and they were terrible. Just... They were super cheap and what they were. I can't remember. Did they have the compact fluorescents or did they have like old school just incandescent sixty seventy fivers? They were incandescents and they were horrendous. Yay! So, what I had done was I researched a bunch of LED lighting. I knew I wanted LED because I wanted to not have to deal with the light bulbs for a very long period of time. And two of the things that you need to look at if you're buying shop lighting in these, you know, these four foot long uh, tubes are the temperature of the lighting and then the lumens. And when I first started looking at this, I knew nothing. Like I heard the term, but I had no idea what it stood for. And the more I researched it, I found that the temperature is more of the color. So there's, you know, the warm colors and the cooler colors. So there's the orangish color that the incandescent type of lights give off all the way to what they call daylight, which is more of the Kelduish whitish kind of color. And here is where I found that the higher the number, the more on that daylight side it's going to be. So in my shop, the lights that I purchased are actually 5,000 Kelvin. For the temperature, which is about the brightest ones that I could find on Amazon in that bluish-white range. And they're considered to be daylight. So it's kind of like you're out in the sun, but it's a consistent light. It's the same color all the time, and it's not hot when it's dark outside. Which is awesome, because you know here in the Southwest, I'm learning that you have... 107 degree days until 9 p.m. And you can't really go out in the shop during the day without a lot of water and a way to stay out of the sun, which isn't always possible. So shop lighting a lot easier. And the second part of the lighting is the lumens, which is basically the brightness output that it's going to have. So the lower the number, the dimmer or lower amount of light output they're going to have. So for me, in the price range I was looking at, it was about a 4,000 lumen range that I was looking at as far as the highest amount of light output I can get in the 5,000 Kelvin temperature range that was, you know, not an astronomical amount of money. And in this case, I got a set of four lights. So each one of them has basically two LED strips, which mimic two four-foot bulbs per fixture. And there were four fixtures, so kind of those eight total LED strips. And you can link them together by plugging them into one another. And I found that having four of them, basically two over each where there would be a car in the garage... If you put two in either case, you really light up the entire garage, and you don't really need any more than that. Now there's the the challenge of if your garage door is up, it does block some of that. And I've, I've seen some makers, uh, specifically Matt over at Gotwood Workshop, I think he put some LED lights in his garage door. So when the garage door raises, there's still light coming down from the garage door in that case. That's some, that's some like serious next level making right there. Cause I, I, ne- I never would have thought of that for sure. Well, I don't think he ever sleeps. So he's just kind of always out there in his shop when it's dark. I got to give it to him. I mean, I know I, I work better in the dark, but, um, you know, I've got a basement shop and unfortunately it came with, uh, I think four or five, I think five, Simple screw-in compact fluorescents, and I have been rocking those since I moved in early last year. 
all except for this weekend. I changed out lighting in my kitchen, which for some reason uh, home builders decided to put a uh, a four fl- four foot fluorescent uh, tube system in the kitchen. Uh, don't know why, makes no sense. But took it out, moved it downstairs. It is amazing. I switched out all the the, the cheap fluorescent bulbs uh, for four LED bulbs that are compatible with the ballasts. Which I know initially when LED bulbs kind of came on the scene, you had to either bypass the ballast or or install some sort of converter. I'm not sure exactly what it was. I remember Matt Cremona showing how to do it uh, in a, one of his shop tour videos um, because he'd upgraded his. But I mean, now you can go to a big box store, buy replacement bulbs for depending on your fluorescence, which I think they're labeled T8 and T T41 maybe? I can't remember off the top of my head. I don't know that much about fluorescent lights. But basically, you go in there and you figure out, like Trevor said, you figure out the temperature you want, uh, and you figure out the lumens. I think there's kind of a max lumen range you can have with those just drop-in bulbs um, because the lumens are kind of set by also maybe how much goes through those uh, those ballasts. But as far as, I mean, as far as making a dramatic change... Uh, it was it was literally like night and day because now I have almost daylight feeling in my shop and it's it's subterranean. The closest thing I have to daylight is if I'm working in the shop and the one window I have in there, the sun is coming down through that window. So I still don't even have good light then, natural daylight. But now, through Trevor's recommendation to to upgrade shop lighting, I uh, I now have a lot better lighting. Makes a big difference. Oh. It, Makes a huge difference. This glue up tonight was much simpler, or well, I shouldn't say much simpler. It was much easier because I could see a lot better and at least you know figure out my grain pattern a lot a lot easier. I've also found that it makes it better for photography or videography. A lot of us are on Instagram. We're trying to put out content, good content. Lately, my lighting has been horrible because I don't have these installed in the new house yet. But it makes a huge difference because when you're shooting a video and your lighting is the same through the entire shot, it makes a huge difference. Yeah, and that's that's the other thing, um, lighting that that I was gonna that I was gonna mention is you know you have your normal lighting at ceiling height, which in your old in your old garage shop was at twelve feet. You know you still got a lot of you still got a lot of light in there, but sometimes you want to get light pretty much right on top of where you're working. So uh, so I really like a nice portable light. Um, I made one for part of a maker challenge I did did last year and just used a simple, cheap aluminum housing that you find oftentimes with a spring clamp. They're, they're in the, you know, the home building section of, uh, of your big box store because they're simple. Plug it in the wall, screw in a light bulb of, of proper size, and you've got pretty good lighting. You can just kind of point and aim. Well, I've made a whole stand for it, and now I can put that, you know, arched right over top of where I'm working. And if I'm chopping mortises or something like that, I can clearly see where my knife lines are. Because I know, you know, non-woodworking people, they, you know, that doesn't mean as much to them. But say you're, you know, say you're doing leather work or you're doing something else you need a, you need to see that real finite line on a uh, a darker material and that line's not really blending in because your lights up at the ceiling you want to have light right on top of where you're working so is, along with you know upgrading your normal shop lighting i suggested just a, a cheap you know cheap uh, a clamp you know clamp on style light cuz uh, all you got to do is get a get a good bulb for it and you can pretty much just downcast it right at where uh, right at where you're working. So I, I think that does it for this episode. We're coming we're coming in at, at 50 minutes right now, so yeah. I think uh, I think I think we're good. People have listened to me listen to me listen to you talk enough. I mean, we could talk all day. Clearly, I can. Um, so Trevor, do you want to roll them out? Um, I know you've got some affiliate links to talk about. Yes, so all of the items that we've talked about today, so a lot of them we've bought at either Home Depot or Amazon, wherever it might be, and 
we're going to link some of those items down below in the show notes. And we're going to probably post uh, anything we can find on Amazon. We're going to use some affiliate links for that and try to help share that information on where we got them and what they are. And anything that we can't find for that, we'll be sure to to share, whether it's a Home Depot link or a third-party link, whatever it might be. All of that information is going to be in the show notes so that you can look at some of these items and see if any of this stuff works for you as well. Well, that sounds uh, sounds pretty, pretty good, Trevor. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else we haven't covered. Well, I'm sure there's something. pertaining to this episode. I mean, there's there's always something. None of us are perfect. Exactly. But we're striving hard to be makers. We're doing our best. Oh, yeah. So I think that does it for this episode. All right. Well, Trevor, take it easy. Enjoy the rest of your night. Thank you for listening to our show. Be sure to check out MakerVisionPodcast.com. We'll post valuable resources, tips, and info about anything we've talked into talked about in today's shows or past shows and all these things are to help your maker vision become a maker reality if you have any questions or suggestions or any comments about what you heard today or once again in previous episodes feel free to drop us a line at makervisionpodcast at gmail.com on instagram at makervisionpodcast or through mine and trevor's personal instagram accounts and that is old south woodcraft or maker experiment if you like the show, please give us a five-star review and uh, and just some really nice words to, to let us know how good we're doing. Or if you didn't like it, let us know what you didn't like about it. Either way, we're happy to hear from you. And you can go and do that on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Once again, thank you for joining us on our podcast, and we really look forward to hearing, hearing from you next week. 